Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello again. This is our monthly Patreon shoutout. So again, the shoutout goes to Lex Pendragon, who is supporting us each month and will be heard on 99 Years 100 Films as part of his reward. A number of other Patreon awards are still available, so make sure you check out the link at uh, Blaine's Bureau 42 Podcasts on Patreon. We've got other live chats available about any topic that has ever been a podcast that I've been a part of. We also have the opportunities to pick or read books for bedtime in the public domain, pick an old-time radio show, or just see under the hood with some of the planning that is coming up. So please check out our Patreon, and again, Lex, thank you for your support. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film is so highly rated. This time around, we are looking at The Lost Weekend. This premiered in LA on November 29th, 1945. That followed its original London premiere of October 5th, 1945. Then it appeared in New York on December 1st, and the mass release in the U.S. was sometime in January 1946. So this may be one of the earlier examples of people timing the film release dates to line up with the end of the year to keep it fresh in the minds of the Academy voters. Which is now common practice. Yep, you could pretty much guarantee anything coming out between Christmas Day and New Year's Day is either a family romp or gunning for an Oscar. Now, it was directed by Billy Wilder. It was based on a semi-autobiographical novel by Charles R. Jackson, with a screenplay by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder. So, we start off with a couple of men packing suitcases, quickly learn through some actually very natural expositional dialogue, which is tough to do, that they are brothers and Don is an alcoholic who's been on the wagon for 10 days. We don't know how firmly he's fixed to that wagon because he does have a bottle of whiskey hanging from his window just outside so that he's got it stashed where he can access it. They are going to be going away for a long weekend to try and help him recover and get his life back on track. Don's girlfriend comes up and she's going to end up going to a concert alone because these guys have to catch the 315 train. But Don insists that, well, he's in no shape to take her to the concert. Wick should take Helen to the concert so she doesn't have to go alone. They'll move to the 630 train. And yeah, Wick reluctantly agrees, but does make a point saying, okay, if we have to go to this concert now, Don, you need to phone the farm, tell them we're on the 630 train because they were going to be expected, dinner was going to be ready. Don agrees. I don't think he ever actually makes that call. Once he's alone, he starts scouring the apartment for alcohol. Uh, he did get caught with that bottle outside the window that Wick poured down the sink. And then 
when the cleaning lady shows up, he not only turns her away, but finds out where her brother normally leaves her pay and insists his brother forgot it, but instead takes that pay to go out and buy more alcohol. And what we see is a weekend where his drinking is just clearly out of control. He falls off the wagon hard. He knows it's a problem. He says that there's two Don Burnhams. There is Don the Drunk and Don the Writer. And every time Don the Writer tries to get productive and make something out of his life, Don the Drunk says, well, hey, why don't we just have a drink first? So he not only makes things very rough with his proper girlfriend, Helen, there is a woman who seems to take a lot of men from Albany on a tour of Grant's tomb. We believe that, at least I firmly believe that's euphemistic. It's not very well veiled. It's, yeah, she is what they call a lady of the night, it, but that's made as clear as the censorship authorities would have allowed at the time, which it means not very, <laughs> at least not explicitly clear. So that's Gloria, who's interested in Don and is blowing off paid customers for a chance to go with him. He messes that up, and we find out that at one point he was suicidal, but to earn the ner or to build up the nerve to actually pull the trigger with the, the gun and the ammunition he bought, he ended up hawking the gun at a pawn shop. And he's been tempted to hawk the portable typewriter his mom got him a few times. He was, you know, a, sort of a wonderkind in college, and he dropped out because, well, why would you need college if you're already doing so well? And things just went completely off the rails. We see flashbacks. His, the novel he's trying to write is about his experiences as an alcoholic, including when he first met Helen. And he ends up going to Gloria. And, you know, when he's doing that, she turns him away after giving him just a, a few bucks. He falls down the stairs, wakes up in a hospital. And he sees people who are in worse shape than he is. And the nurse is saying, yeah, I know the path you're on. Pretty soon the hallucinations are going to start. It's always small animals. And when he's home, he sees his terrifying hallucination of a bat attacking a mouse and killing it right through a hole in the wall. When he sobers up, Helen helps him see that didn't actually happen. And then he recognizes how bad it is. And he ends up, he decides to kill himself again. He even steals Helen's coat to go back to the pawn shop and trade it for the gun. And the day before, he tried trading in his typewriter, and the only reason he didn't succeed is because apparently every pawn shop owner in New York is either Jewish or Irish, and they have a deal where everyone closes for Yom Kippur. So the Irish people close to respect Yom Kippur, so they don't have the monopoly that day, while the Jewish people stay closed on St. Patrick's Day. So in a natural response... And he trades Helen's fur coat to get the gun back. And when Helen learns this, she followed him to the pawn shop. She goes back to his apartment and actually tries to get him to drink again because she'd rather have him drunk than dead. And with her support, he manages to, to decide to move on. And then it's, yeah, it's implied that he is going to get through it, which you know, probably was true in the... Because if this is something autobiographical from Charles R. Jackson, I suspect he made it through, he clearly made it through at least long enough to write a novel and get it turned into a movie, even if the release of the novel did have a typo that didn't get caught until it was in print, <laughs> since he intended to call it not The Lost Weekend, but The Last Weekend. That's right, because Ray Milland 
I'm going to say studied with him to learn how to get into character because Raymond Land himself was not an alcoholic, so it wasn't a manner or a topic that came naturally to him. No, but he, I was probably more impressed with his performance than anything else in this film because it is so easy to overplay being drunk. But he he walked the line nicely, so you always know when he's had a few, but he's not overplaying it. He's not turning it into a caricature, which is particularly rare. There's even a, a line where they say, yeah, for most people, we're just, you know, the comic fools. And he's right. It was extremely rare to see alcoholics depicted as anything but comic relief in really any media, not just prior to this, but even for decades after this. Were you familiar with Ray Milland before you saw this? Uh, I've, I've seen some of his later works. Okay. You know, so a few of his film noirs, one of the better episodes of Columbo. I, I was going to say, if if he's remembered by our generation, it's probably more as an older villain type. But as we've discovered with this podcast, I put him on the same level as a Frederick March, you know, those those actors who are great actors, but since so much of their work was centered in the 30s or the 40s, they're almost forgotten by the current generation now. Uh, two films of his that I recommend from different genres. He's in perhaps my favorite, one of my favorite film noir pieces, The Big Clock with Charles Lawton. And he's in a pretty fun romantic comedy with uh, Ginger Rogers, the major and the minor. Okay, I actually haven't seen either of those. For me, the strongest association is Dial M for Murder as Tony Wendis, the Hitchcock film. He, he, he's an actor who always had an older bearing about him. So he had kind of that reserved English, a little bit of the same reserved English suaveness uh, that Cary Grant had, but his manner was a little bit more like Gregory Peck, so he was like this kind of weird meld between the two. Yeah, running through his IMDb, he's got a number of impressive credits, including the original Moulin Rouge. He's got 174 credits. The last came out in 1985, and he passed away at age 79 in 1986. So he was working pretty much right until the end. And just to be clear, he he was in two episodes of Columbo, but The Greenhouse Jungle was the one that always stands mm -hmm. out for me. Others who grew up on 70s and 80s TV might know him for Hardy Boy Nancy Drew Mysteries or for Sire Uri in Battlestar Galactica, the you know both the movie and the, the TV series. And I think, I, I haven't looked this up, so I'm doing it by memory. I think he was the villain in the original uh, Escape from Witch Mountain, or Escape to Witch Mountain. Uh, yeah, he was Aristotle Bolt yep. in Escape to Witch Mountain. Yep. He's got a very impressive resume. A lot of the, the roles where he would have been sort of the headliner, aside from The Ray Milan Show, which ran for 77 episodes from 1953 to 1955, would have been predominantly in the film noir genre in the 40s and 50s. But his career extends both before and after that. 
we'll get to the complete list of awards for this. Uh, but he did take home Best Actor. Mm. And while I haven't seen all of the other movies, actually, we'll just go through the awards now. Sure. Obviously, this one, Best Motion Picture, beating out Anchors Away, Bells of St. Mary's, Mildred Pierce, and Spellbound. And I am a huge Alfred Hitchcock fan. And Spellbound was a Hitchcock film with Gregory Peck and Ingrid Bergman. But I got to say, of the two, yeah, Lost Weekend. Best Director, Billy Wilder won for The Lost Weekend, beating out Leo McCary for The Bells of St. Mary's, Clarence Brown for National Velvet, Jean Renoir for The Southerner, and Alfred Hitchcock for Spellbound. Best Actor, Ray Land, in this role, beat out Bing Crosby for The Bells of St. Mary's, Gene Kelly for Anchors Away, Gregory Peck for Keys of the Kingdom, and Cornell Wilde for A Song to Remember. Best Actress... Did not have any nominees from The Lost Weekend. It went to Joan Crawford for Mildred Pierce. Beating out Ingrid Bergman from Bells of St. Mary's, Greer Garson from The Value of Decision, Jennifer Jones from Love Letters, and Jean Tierney from Lever to Heaven. Best Supporting Actor went to James Dunn for A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Beating out Michael Chekhov for Spellbound, John Dahl for The Corn is Green, Robert Mitchum for The Story of G.I. Joe, and J. Carol Nash for A Medal for Benny. And Best Supporting Actress... Went to Anne Revere for National Velvet, beating out Eve Arden for Mildred Pierce, Anne Blythe also for Mildred Pierce, Angela Lansbury for A Picture of Dorian Gray, and Jean, or Joan Loring sorry, for The Corn is Green. Now, the last two of what I would consider the major awards, the or I guess last three, the writing-based awards. Mm-hmm. Original screenplay went to Richard Schweitzer for his work on Mary Louise beating out the writers for Dillinger, Music for Millions, Salty O'Rourke, and What's Next, Corporal Hargrove. This won Best Screenplay, beating out the writers for Mildred Pierce, Pride of the Marines, Story of G.I. Joe, and A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. And the Best Motion Picture Story went to The House on 92nd Street by Charles G. Booth, beating out The Affairs of Susan, A Medal for Benny, Objective Burma, and A Song to Remember. Now, the other... Awards. Best Short Subject Cartoons went to Quiet, Please. Best Documentary Feature went to The True Glory, which is, again, U.S. Office of War uh, War Information. Best Documentary Short Subject was Hitler Lives, Beating Out Library of Congress and To the Shores of Iwo Jima. Best Live Action Short Subject One Reel was Stairway to Light. Two Reels was Star in the Night. Best Scoring for a Dramatic or Motion Picture Comedy the Lost Weekend by Miklos Rosa was nominated. It was one of 20 nominations, or possibly 21 here. But while Miklos Rosa did not win for scoring The Lost Weekend, he did win for scoring Spellbound. So it's still another one for the people working on this film. For a musical picture, George Stoll took home the award for Anchors Away. There's only 12 nominations in that category. Best original song was It Might As Well Be Spring from State Fair. Went to Rodgers and Hammerstein. There's 14 nominees in that category. And best sound recording went to The Bells of St. Mary's and Stephen Dunn. With, again, 12 nominations. Now, the interior decoration black and white for best art direction went to Blood on the Sun. The interior color decoration went to Frenchman's Creek. Black and white cinematography... Lost Weekend was nominated, but uh, Harry Stradling won for the picture of Dorian Gray, 
beating out Keys of the Kingdom Lost Weekend, Mildred Pierce, and Spellbound. And for color cinematography, that went to Lever to Heaven and Leon Shamurai. Best editing, Dewan Harrison was nominated for the work in The Lost Weekend, but it was won by Robert J. Kern for National Velvet. And then finally for special effects, Lost Weekend was not nominated. That went to Wonder Man for the photographic effects by John F. Fulton and sound effects by Arthur Jones. So, interestingly, William Wyler, having won the Best Director Award the previous year, was the presenter of Best Director this year. <laughs> so he presented him. Yeah, that would have been a little awkward. Or no, it's Wyler, not Wilder. Wilder. So it was two different people. I want to talk about the Best Supporting Best Supporting Actor category just a little bit. Having seen A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, I don't think he would have won. But could you have seen Howard, Howard De Silva in this category? I could have. It's tough because he doesn't have a whole lot of depth. But at the same time, you know, for the listeners, he was the one who played Nat, the barkeep. No one gave a disingenuine performance. No. So it's... Like he he nailed it. He had a little more depth than most of the other actors. Would it have been enough enough depth to have really been recognized as a standout performance? Because you can have, you can actually go through Hollywood and find a lot of flawless performances that don't get nominated because it's one note, right? You you don't see the range and the emotion that others do because the scripts don't call for it in that character, and that's what we have with Nat. He. A lot of the people who know Don, they do, some of them care about him. He is the one that will cut him off or, or kick him out even when Don is able to pay. Others are going, yeah, you're destroying your life, but as long as you can pay, I'll take it. He does that to a degree. He helps cover when his girlfriend shows up. Well, I, I, think, I think what gives Nat some depth is the sympathy that he feels for Helen. Yeah, that, that is true. He's the one saying, like, that the woman you have, she is amazing, and she deserves better than this. Right? There's a little bit of a, be a better man for her, which is good. Like, Yeah, I, I get why the role didn't get Oscar attention, but if his name had shown up in the list, I wouldn't have questioned it. So we talked about his portrayal in the film a little bit in terms of you know, not going over the top, but how did you feel about the portrayal of alcoholism as a disease in the film? That was actually a pleasant surprise because to me, it seems like that wasn't the way it was regarded until you know, very recently, as in within my lifetime, not more than 30 years prior to my lifetime. And I think a lot of that could be coming from a writer who recognizes himself as an alcoholic and who has tried to get treatment and it has been treated as a disease. So he, he may be recognizing the value in that perspective and trying to convey that, that perspective to others and saying that, yeah, you know what, this is the kind of attitude that will actually help people like me. I also think it did a great job of showing the desperate acts it can drive a person to without the person being a horrible person in a naturalistic way. You know, this isn't something like 
reefer madness to where Don takes one drink and then wipes out, you know, an entire town while drunk driving. I'm not making light of drunk driving, but it's it's not so over the top as that. But, you know, we see him actively dodge and avoid people. He lies. He steals. Mm-hmm. And lies to himself about the stealing, calling it borrowing. Right. You know, he manipulates poor Gloria. And yet, at the same time, you're not wondering what Helen sees in him. Yeah, part of that is the way it's metered. He even talks about when they first met, he stayed sober for a week just for her. He went to a cocktail party with her, but you know what? he was going for the cocktails because he'd refused the invitation, dropped his bottle of rye, said, oh, what kind of party is it? Cocktail party. Oh, is the invite still open? And went with her. So he knew he was going for the cocktails, but by the time he got there, he realized she is something special and he stuck to tomato juice. So yeah, it, it was very well handled where you can see the choices that they'll make to hide themselves from others. You can even see Wick lying for him when Wick was claiming, no, I've got the drinking problem. He's in Philadelphia getting a job that he wanted to surprise you with. And then he comes up to the other room drunk saying, no, you deserve the truth and fills her in. It's as someone who lost an uncle to alcoholism, I see this as one of the most realistic portrayals I have ever seen of the the kind of spiral. Now he didn't get, my uncle didn't get quite this bad because his wife was very much the enabler. So that's not something we need to get into on the podcast. But it's not about, oh yeah, you got behind the wheel of a car and destroyed someone's life, and that's the moral of the story at the end, where people say, well, so what, then I'm just not going to drive. It's not that simple. It shows how it destroys life from the inside. His one goal was to be a writer, and he was ready to get rid of the typewriter just for one evening's worth of drinks. Yeah, it, I thought it was handled very well. And when we mentioned Howard DeSilva, if people are wondering who he is, one of those oh that guys, um, I think he's best known for playing Ben Franklin in the musical 1776. The IMDb agrees with you. That's his top of the best known for. If you're a diehard Whovian like Blaine and I, you may know him for his linking narration on some of the Dr. Tom Baker Doctor Who episodes when they were first imported to the North American market. Yeah, he's also known for the Blue Dahlia and They Live by Night. So those two and this role round out his top four on the IMDb. He's been in a lot. He was in the remake of M from 1951. He was a tough guy in the film version of Duffy's Tavern just before this, which is a radio show I need to listen to more. Yeah, it's a a neighborhood bar where the elite need to eat. It's a comedy series, and the creator's son would go on to create Cheers. So there's a lot of references, both on Cheers and on The Simpsons. That's where uh, Moe's Tavern... Yeah, Duff Beer and Where the Elite Meet to Drink came, comes from, you know, Duffy's Tavern, where they always answer Where the Elite Meet to Eat. So if we go through the other films for the year, you know, because we always say, did the Academy make the right choice? If we look at the IMDb list of the highest rated films from 1945, we've got Children of Paradise, Rome, Open City, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, Mildred Pierce, 
Brief Encounter, then The Lost Weekend is 6th, Scarlet Street is 7th, and then Dead of Night, Spellbound, Lever to Heaven, Picture of Dorian Gray, and Our Vines Have Tender Grapes round out the top 12. So that covers most of the nominees. By the time we get to the others, I'm even having... Well, there's Bells of St. Mary's at 28, and Anchors Away comes in at 39th for the year. Well, I really feel like the closest contenders were Mildred Pierce and Spellbound. Anchors Away is a lighthearted musical, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it just doesn't have the dramatic heft of the others. It's probably best remembered today for the scene of uh, Gene Kelly dancing with Jerry the Mouse from Tom and Jerry. The Bells of St. Mary's, I haven't seen. I really, I, I still give it to The Lost Weekend. Mildred Pierce, to me, is the one who comes closest. I enjoyed Spellbound from a kind of, I, I guess, plot perspective. I had nothing wrong with Gregory Peck, and I had nothing wrong with Ingrid Bergman, but I just didn't feel the chemistry between the two that was needed to kind of sell their relationship. So I think the Academy made the best choice, and out of what was nominated, the only other one I would possibly give my vote to would be Mildred Pierce. Okay, I can see that. I haven't seen Mildred Pierce yet. I haven't seen Anchors Away recently. I did see it when I was young, but I remember it as, you know, a a typical Gene Kelly musical. Which is not a bad thing. (laughs) No, it's... (laughs) A typical Gene Kelly musical is still going to be in the top 10 to 25% of all musicals, but it's not one of his best musicals. We will be discussing those when you get to the early 50s. Yep. So yeah, I would also, having not seen Mildred Pierce, I would also say it's between Lost Weekend and Spellbound. And even though Hitchcock is one of my all-time favorite directors and I generally love his movies, I would give it to The Lost Weekend. Partly because, as you said, the chemistry doesn't quite gel for Spellbound, but for me it wasn't so much about the chemistry as the mystery, and I thought that was well handled. But to me what tips Lost Weekend over the edge is it's not just a story, it's a story with a social message that was highly atypical for the time. They were coming out of World War II when people were looking for escapism, and this did not deliver escapism. This delivered a message that some people, a lot of people frankly, needed to hear, especially in that post-prohibition era that they make reference to in the film. So I I would say that that it's there for that as well. And it's much more naturalistic. It's thin tissue to compare the two by, I, I freely admit, but I kept comparing the dreams of Gregory Peck's character with the hallucinations of Ray Milan's character, and while the dreams in Spellbound, by design, are much more visual, they're they're very Dolly-esque, because Dolly was involved in helping design them, compare that with just the simple, the bat eating and attacking the mouse, I found the bat eating and attacking the mouse much more disturbing and affecting than the dream set pieces from Spellbound. Yeah, and 
I think that's by design because they they've got different purposes. The the dream sequences in Spellbound were meant to be abstract so that it would take time to interpret the clues to help solve the murder, while the dream sequences in The Lost Weekend were not intended to feel like dreams to Ray Milan's character at the time. He had to believe they were real. So, yeah, it, it definitely... I mean, if anything, that was... I found that, that part of that dream sequence was the weakest point because the, the bat flying around the room did not seem particularly realistic, although they did clearly switch to a real bat and a real mouse for the end of that mm-hmm. shot. Just going by the letterbox voters as well, which we do, if we were to rank the best movies of the year on Letterboxd, the nominees do a little bit better here. I think they're all in the top 25, and this includes some foreign films that wouldn't have been eligible. The highest rated film from 1945 is Brief Encounter. Then there's Rome Open City with Spellbound coming in third. We've got Children of Paradise, Mildred Pearson fifth, Detour is six, and then Lost Weekend is seven, and Scarlet Street as eight. It was seventh on the IMDb. That was one that we also watched coming into this, directed by Fritz Long, which is, that's an interesting noir character piece um, I would recommend. Then we get Lever to Heaven, I Know Where I'm Going, Dead of Night, The Body Snatcher, My Name is Julian Ross, The Picture of Dorian Gray comes in at 14th, um, and then There Were None is 15th, the Agatha Christie adaptation, Christmas in Connecticut, and Anchors Away are the next two. And A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is 24th, with The Bells of St. Mary at 25th. And then we have some of the other contenders like State Fair, Dillinger, The Story of G.I. Joe, which is one of the ones that got the Best Supporting Actor nomination for Robert Mitchum, also had Burgess Meredith, and was apparently frequently considered one of the best military films up to that point, and inspired the name of the G.I. Joe line of toys. So the... So it looks like IMDb and and Letterboxd both agree that Mildred Pierce is actually the better film, but none of them say it's by a lot. And if we look at the other contenders, there's some disagreement there, although Rome Open City is supposed to be fantastic. Although looking at that, it's set during the Nazi occupation of Rome in 1944, so that would also resonate mm-hmm. quite strongly with audiences in 19 or in actually I guess for the academy they would have been voting in 1946 when the war was already over on films that came out in 1945 you know that were produced when we didn't necessarily know when the war was going to end so yeah I think it it sounds like I do need to check out Mildred Pierce yes I, I I won't discuss it much because it is kind of a mystery noir but it, I, I found it extremely entertaining, and Joan Crawford is amazing in it. Well, she did take home the Oscar, so yeah, it, it seems like the there was a very strong year here, and we've got a few more of those mm-hmm. coming up. So I guess it's down to who would we recommend this to? It, it's more niche film fans. So while not a not a gangster film, not a mystery, I still feel this film. Um, falls firmly in the, the noir subgenre. So I, I would recommend it to fans of that genre. If you like, I don't want to say message films, but if you like good social 
impact films, I, I would recommend it for that as well. I always recommend that people seek out uh, Ray Milland as an actor, and we've mentioned several other films to sample from his career during the podcast, um, but this is a good one to start with. Actually, a really good double feature for this year would be to watch The Lost Weekend and then A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. A Tree Grows in Brooklyn is the story of an Irish-American family from the daughter's viewpoint, and the, um, the, the father in it is an alcoholic. So it's, it's interesting to see the subject from two viewpoints. One is more how it affects the family unit versus the individual. And you, two, you do get two different but good portrayals of alcoholics. Um, when you mention James Dunn winning for Best Supporting Actor, he played the alcoholic father in A Tree Rose in Brooklyn. Okay. That's good. So personally, I would, I, I agree that even though the plot is not what we normally associate with noir, the filmmaking style very much is. So if you're fans of film noir cinematography, this is certainly worth checking out. I would also recommend it on the basis that it is one of the few realistic portrayals of alcoholism that deals with some of the negative side effects that are often overlooked. Right? When you've got the very special episode of whatever sitcom that deals with it, it usually doesn't hit these points. And you know, it, it's not, I haven't seen a portrayal that is this realistic. Because while drunk driving certainly is a problem, most alcoholics don't end up killing someone behind the wheel. Now, a lot of that might be because they recognize that if I'm going to go here. I'm going to get drunk. And a lot of it is that there are rules and regulations in terms of, you know, bars allowing people to leave without a cab on what you, but where, where I am, there are, there is a point where you, the bartenders are legally obligated to make sure that someone leaves in a cab or with a sober driver. They're just not permitted to get behind the wheel or the people serving them the alcohol are liable in part for what happens after. So while that is, like we said, a common extreme, this covers the much more common side effects of, you know, selling and stealing to get the next fix in whatever the addiction is. So a lot of the issues that we see here would also be common to drug addiction and other forms of addiction. I will mention one other film, tie, and I don't know if you've seen this film or not, Blaine, but there is a great early 80s Steve Martin and Carl Reiner comedy called Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which is a love letter to noir films. And it is a film built around interweaving and using clips from other films. And they use a handful of clips from Lost Weekend in it to the point to where there's a sugar bowl that is a plot point in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. And the scenes of revolving that um, sugar bowl are the scenes of Ray Milland stealing the cleaning woman's money that Wick leaves behind. And when I saw that, I remembered that is the sugar bowl from Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Okay. I actually haven't seen that yet. I'm not generally a huge Steve Martin fan, but yeah, I should check it out. And I do remember when I was taking film studies courses at university, that 
film was the focus of the editing chapter, of the way it was edited. So it's been on my to-watch list, but not a huge priority. It hasn't been convenient to see in the intervening years. So anyway, do so I guess that wraps this one up. So next up will be our coverage of the best years of our lives. So we're back to a film directed by William Wyler, starring Myrna Loy, Friedrich March, Dana Andrews, Teresa Wright, Virginia Mayo, and uh, Harold Russell. And it's a post-war film, which I look forward to watching for the first time. It'll be the first time for me as well. We're ramping up towards the peak of Billy Wilder's career, so this is going to be fun. Yeah, it'll it'll be good. And actually looking ahead, it's going to be interesting for me because while I've seen a fair number of nominees over the years, I have seen one of the winners between now and 1959. So I've previously seen An American in Paris. And then after that, it's not until the 60s that we're back to movies I've already seen. And then I've seen over half. Yeah, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I've seen at least half from each of the decades after okay. that. But I've got a lot of first-time views coming in the next year and a half or so of the podcast. So, just like to remind our listeners that, yeah, we do have an isolated feed now on Anchor.fm. If you are still listening on the Bureau 42 Master Audio feed, we now do, since we've switched from Podbean to Anchor, we've got dedicated feeds for every show again. So you can find us there and leave us voicemail directly through most podcasting apps of that Anchor website, which we are totally open to using as the feedback starts to come in, either through that or through emails sent to 99years100films at gmail.com, where the numbers are numerals and not words. As that feedback comes in, Trey and I will record feedback episodes just for the sake of discussing it in a more timely fashion, because we do tend to record fairly well in advance, usually about 10 or 11 months lead time. So, uh, yeah, please feel free to submit that feedback, and thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. I want some more.